0: Good morning. Good morning. morning. If you're new to LCF, um, a couple things. First, we are walking through the book of Romans and also talking about, as a church, What do we believe, and what do we believe a devoted follower of Christ looks like? Uh, And so, as we're going through, you are jumping here in the middle of Romans 6. We've gone through five chapters, but I'm going to catch you up here in a little bit around what we've covered so far. Also, if you are new and don't have a Bible, uh, we've got Bibles back here in the back corner of the church. Feel free to go grab one and track along with us. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that as our gift to you um, this morning. And so... Here as we go through Romans chapter 6, um, we must know that we are jumping in in the middle of Paul's letter. And everything he said in Romans chapter five, 1 through 5 is going to be the foundation upon which he is going to transition into Romans 6. And so to catch us up, um, there are three key movements that have happened so far within the book and that are about to happen. Paul has covered universal sin, um, he's covered justification by grace through faith, and he's about to go into and make a transition now and to talk about what does our life in Christ look like? And what does it look like for God to transform the life of all who are justified in Christ? And so that's where we're going today is we're making this transition from building upon those two key things, that all have sinned and then that justification is made available to all who have put their faith in Christ. And now he's going to talk about what does this practically look like in your life? What does it look like to follow Christ is where we are heading today. And so... As we go through today, um, we're going to follow a basic outline. The way I've defined my outline is, is I try to fit different verbs in there and different words in there. The best way I could do it is in light of being in Kansas City, our outline is going to follow the basics of rib or rub. Um, it's going to talk about, uh, I was like, yeah, let's do a barbecue theme. I went to Q39 last night. So, um Our outline is going to look like this. We're going to talk about Paul's rejection of this false conclusion that we'll outline. Um, The second point is we're going to look at our identity in Christ or our union with Christ. And then the third point that we're going to walk through is how baptism is actually a visible symbol of that union with Christ. So we're going to look at a rejection, our identity or our union. And then we're going to look at how baptism is actually a picture of that union with Christ, And so with that as an introduction, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, verse 1. It's on page 1001 of those black hardback Bibles. So Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Here's our word today. It says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Let me pray for us. Father, We ask you to help us to understand this glorious truth in this passage, Father, that we have been united with Christ. God, that we are in him. Father, help us to understand your word. Help us to have this truth transform the way we view you, the way we view ourselves, God, and the way that we live our lives day to day um, in this world. God, thank you for what Jesus has done and God, for the ways that that transforms everything about our life. God, for those in this room who have been living and don't understand what their identity in you means for them, God, I pray that you will transform them through this word this morning, and God, that we will walk in obedience to your word. Father, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So our first point here is this rejected conclusion that Paul is going to reach. He's, he's asking this question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And his point is, what shall we say then? He's referencing his previous um, argument there in Romans 5:17. In Romans 5:17, as we covered last week, Paul has just finished building the argument that our righteousness which by the way, that's a church word that just is talking about our perfect obedience to God's law, this perfect obedience to all that God has commanded to us, our righteousness, it is a free gift. That is given to us by God and received by grace through faith. And so in Romans 5.20, what Tim covered last week is that the law came along to multiply the trespasses. Our knowledge and our awareness of our sin grew from the law. And But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. We covered that where sin abounded, grace superabounded. Where we lived in sin in our lives, where we broke God's law, the more we ran away from him, the more we drifted and the more we rebelled against him, the more grace we received, the more forgiveness we received. God just generously lavishes upon us grace upon grace upon grace. And that when we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is our Savior, all the sin in your life that you have committed and will commit is forgiven. And his point here is that what makes you right before God is not church attendance. It's not helping little ladies across the street. It's not anything you possibly could do, but it's this gift that's been given to you by Jesus. And the more you sin, the more God has forgiven. There's no amount of sin that could possibly disqualify you from being forgiven because Christ's righteousness, his perfect obedience to the law covers up all of our sin. And so when we understand that our actions do not in any way contribute to or add to our salvation, what happens is then we reach this natural question. If God is so good at giving grace and we as people are so good at sinning, dude, why don't I just keep on sinning all the more so that grace get, God gets even more glory by giving me even more grace? Why don't I just keep living this life of sin so that God gets more glory? And so what Paul is doing is he's asking this question, does grace undermine our ethical responsibility to follow him and promote just reckless sinning? If we are saved by grace alone, does it promote just this reckless sinning, this life of abandonment into sin? And if everything depends on what God has done, then what does it matter at all, what I do and how I live, is what Paul's asking. And Paul's going to answer this question with a firm no. In our translation, we see that Paul explains, he rejects this premise by saying, absolutely not. Paul in the Greek, he says no in the most powerful way you possibly could. It's almost like him saying, no, no, that's not it. It reminds me of the office when Toby comes back into the office and Michael Scott encounters him and he's like, no, no, like he's screaming, no, that is not the point. Translators like struggle to get across Paul's emphasis here. Different translations will say, by no means is that what the gospel leads to. Others say, God forbid. My favorite is actually a British translation that says, what a ghastly thought, Um, like, it's the perfect way to say, no, like, that's not Paul's intent. Um, he's abhorred by the thought of people drawing this conclusion from his gospel. That's not what his gospel's about, is leading us into this life of sin and enslavement to sin and further blaspheming the name of God. That's not his point. The first point with Paul's rejection here is that God's superabounding grace is never intended to be a license for sin. God's super grace, this grace that covers all sin, is never intended ever to be a license for you to continue living in sin. And it's only when we are gospel-centered, when we view ourselves as saved by the precious blood of Christ alone, that we are able to pursue holiness as God, God longs for It's actually this gospel that frees us to live a life of obedience. It does not free us to then keep living in sin and in disobedience and running from God. If we pursue holiness while ignoring the gospel, we are going to strive to simply white-knuckle sin. We must know that this gospel frees us for obedience, not on our own way, but it actually frees us in the way that it changes our identity. It gives us this new identity, and that's going to be our second point is that We have union with Christ because of the gospel or that we are now in Christ. And that is the way in which we change. We experience sanctification or growth in holiness. And so that's going to be what we're going to focus on here in the middle is our union with Christ or that we are in Christ. And so... Paul's explained that the superabounding grace is never intended to be a license for sin. He said that, no, we cannot live that way. And now he's going to explain what that means. And so Paul's primary reason for our union with, our obedience to God is our union with Christ. It's not, hey, do better. Now that we've covered this grace thing, now move on. Now it's all about striving. Now it's all about you doing stuff. You need to focus. No, it's about union with Christ. And here's what I want you to understand is that Christ-likeness, obedience to Christ, fulfilling the law is possible as we live in Jesus and live out from the virtue of union with Christ. And this is Paul's central argument here. Look back down in your text to verse 2. He explains that we once lived in sin. He then goes on to say that um, we are no longer in sin, but we are baptized into Christ Jesus We are in him. Paul's point, and to summarize our message from last week that he's building upon, is that all of us, we are born into this world on Adam's team. We are wearing a jersey that is Adam. We are in Adam. We are on Adam's team. And Adam's team is the losing team. It's the team you did not want to pick in your March Madness bracket, which I did pick, which was Virginia, um, to win the championship. They are the losing team. We are born on that team. And from there, the beautiful thing is that this, this team that we previously on is a team of sin, guilt, death, and judgment. But God does not leave us there. He gives us this new birth. We take off that Adam jersey and we put on the Christ jersey. We are no longer in Adam because Christ has invited us to be in him. Now, this Christ team, this team that you want to be on, this is the team that always wins. You traded jerseys and are now on the team that eternally wins. And this theme of being in Christ is everywhere in Scripture. Real quick, turn over to Ephesians 1. It's on page 1036 of those black hardback Bibles. And as you flip there, I want to explain real quickly in a different metaphor what happens when we become in Christ. It's similar to the game Red Rover, um, which hopefully you haven't played in years and years and years, because I think it's been banned from like all places. We don't play in youth group because it's too, viol- too violent. Um, But Red Rover, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's this game where you have two different sides, and you line up in these two teams, you hold hands with the people on your team, and you go, Red Rover, Red Rover, send so-and-so right over. And from there, they run across a field, head steam, running as fast as they can, and their goal is to break the bond between these two people holding hands. And if they hit their hands, and they don't break through, what happens? When you lose you actually join the winning team. It's like the best game in the world for people who are not that athletic. Like You, you are joining the winning team by not being good. Um, it's a beautiful picture. And it's in that that as we look at Ephesians 1, I want you to think about what it looks like for us to now be grafted in and to be put as part of um, Jesus' team despite the fact that we had no merit to be there. Because on one side, you have us. You have poor, blind sinners who are enemies of God. And from there, you have Jesus, who is God's Son, who is perfectly obedient, who is righteous, who has never broken God's law, who is holy and blameless. And here's what Paul says about these two different people. He says in Ephesians 1, 3-4, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. And he goes on in 1 7 to say, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In 111, he goes on to say, In him we have also received an inheritance. In 13, he says, In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. His point is clear. All that Christ did is now ours. When you put your faith in Christ, all that Christ did is now ours. Look at his life and the nobility, the greatness and courage of what he has done. The father looks at the son and bursts with the light. This text is now saying that everything Jesus done has legally become yours. God looks upon you and bursts with the light because of what Christ has done on your behalf. But the reality is, if Christ remains outside of us, if we are not in him, if we are still on the other team, wearing the other jersey, on the wrong side of the field, the blessings of being in Christ are useless. But being in Christ means that all of what Christ did is ours. And so... As I mentioned earlier, this union with Christ, being in Christ, means that Christ is not just next to you. He's not someone who's outside of you. He's not someone who's distant from you, but he's in you. He's with you. He's, he's there, present in you. And his spirit, this is the beautiful thing, dwells in you and gives you the power to be able to change, to see redemption and transformation in your life. You are no longer separate from God. You are in him, and he is in you. You And this presence transforms us. It transforms the way we live. And C.S. Lewis beautifully explains what it looks like when God's spirit dwells in us, when it begins to transform us. In his book, Mere Christianity, he describes this. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know that these jobs need doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come in and live in it himself. And so this morning, God has no desire for you to play church. He doesn't want you to simply come in here and seek for some inner peace or some inspiration, some meaning or a little bit of purpose in your life. By no means is his purpose in your life to solely add a little positivity and encouragement on your drive home. His purpose is so much bigger. He longs to give you a new identity, and he is planning this master renovation to make everything in your life new through your identity in Christ. And I, I'm a visual person, so I think it's helpful for us to see this visually. Um, there, are, There's these three key concepts that are here, and it's that What God is doing is he's telling us who he is. He is telling us who the savior of the world is. He's telling us who Jesus is and who he is. He's giving us our proper theology. And this theology leads us to this identity. So all that Christ is, all that he accomplished is now in us. It's our identity. We are seen as this way by God and given his righteousness And the way we are to live is an overflow of that identity. It's an overflow of who we truly are. Our world's obsessed with being true to who you are. I remember last year when I went to the senior assembly at LHS, countless times I heard people say, be true to you guys, be true to who you are. They're right, but they're wrong at the same time. What they don't understand is we are called to be true to this new identity, this new man who we are created in Christ, not our old self not this person of the flesh. We have been given this new identity that we are to live out of and in light of. When you live in sin, you're not living in a way that's true to yourself. You're actually living in a way that's true to the old man, to the old self. We have been given a new identity, a new way of living that comes directly from Christ. And so what I want to do is tie together this idea of the identity in Christ, the reality of the identity in Christ. Now that we've covered kind of what some of that is and what Paul's talking about to the reality of baptism and what Paul is going to argue within this section of Romans. And so we've covered that God's superabounding grace is never intended to be a license to sin. And we've talked about how our union with Christ, that we are in Christ, transforms who we are and how we are to live. Now Paul's going to tie those two things together within the context of baptism so look back at the text, Romans 6, 2 and 3. Paul is going to ask two questions. He asks, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? First, do you see that Paul is backing up to baptism to be the foundation of his argument against why you can't continue to live in sin. Baptism, according to the Bible and according to Paul, isn't just for super-Christians. Paul assumes that all Christians could remember back to their baptism and what it represents. And he is going to reference one of the central meanings of baptism in order to serve as the foundation for why we are not to continue in sin, and that's our union with Christ. And so as we talk about baptism, I want to make one quick clarification about what baptism is. Baptism is a symbol. And think about this. When I look at the cross that's up here on stage, is this the actual cross that Jesus died on? No, it's not the actual cross that Jesus died on. It's a symbol. It's something that we look to to remind us of what Christ did on the cross and all that that means. But it's absolutely not the cross that Jesus died on himself. And in the same way, baptism itself is a symbol. It's symbolizing the spiritual reality of us becoming in Christ. It's not itself what brings about that regeneration and that change and that new identity. It is a symbol of it. Baptism itself doesn't physically do any of the things it represents, but it helps us connect the truth by experientially participating in a symbol that represents what truly happened in the past. And so with that understanding, let's keep going through. So Romans 3, uh, Romans 6, 3, he says, Or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, verse 4, we were buried with him by baptism into death. And so we see that we were baptized into Christ's death. In baptism, we celebrate that we are identified with Christ in his death. And so think about this, when we set the baptismal here, and as we submerge someone under the water, we are showing that they have died and that they have been buried with Christ. Just as Christ died on the cross, they too are saying that they have died. When Christ was taken down from the cross and put in the tomb, they too are saying that they have been taken down and placed into the tomb and buried. And so as we dip them back and push them under the water, that momentary pause as the water sweeps over them and overhead, it demonstrates our burial with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We died. And your baptism is a sort of funeral in that way. And so this is why in these two verses he argues that we died to sin. In this, Paul is referring to the past tense reality that we have died to the guilt and condemnation of our sin. We are no longer guilty for the sin that we have committed because Christ bore that guilt and penalty of our sin on the cross. Paul is talking about the past tense accomplishment of what Christ did that is ours through union with him. We in Christ really have died to the guilt of sin. So, Baptism is a funeral in a way, yes, but praise be to God that it's not just a funeral. Verse 4 is going to show baptism is also a resurrection from the grave as well. And so in verse 4, he goes on after saying that we are buried with him by baptism into death. He says, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Have you ever thought about the joy that fills our church every Easter? When we look back two weeks ago and we think about the resurrection, this new life that Christ received, his conquering of death, we get to celebrate that whenever we see someone baptized. And by the way, whenever you were baptized, you, when you watch someone else get baptized, get to remember these truths, that you died to sin and that you too have been raised to walk in this newness of life. You've been raised from Team Adam to now being on Team Jesus. Not Team Edward or Team Jacob if you're big into the Twilight series. You're with Team Jesus. Um, And so we were raised and given this new life that we walk in. And as one commentator puts it around, talking about we weren't called to run in Christ. We weren't called to sprint in Christ, thank goodness. We were called to walk in Christ. And this metaphor for the steady, unspectacular progress that should characterize the Christian life. We are called to walk in this newness of life that is ours, achieved by Christ on the cross. And so in verse 5, Paul continues this metaphor in talking about the purpose of baptism. He says, "'For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection.'" Paul here is emphasizing the certainty of this new life that we now have that is tied directly to our identification with Christ. If we are identified with him in his death, we too must certainly be identified with him in his resurrection and in this new life. The resurrection is not solely about our future resurrection either. It's about this new life that we have here and now in Christ that comes with faith. Paul in 6 and 7 continues on, and he continues to give us incredible truth that transforms us by our identity. He says that um, he's going to elaborate on the significance of our death in Christ in order to make the point that we are freed from sin's slavery. And so he does this by developing three premises here in verses 6 and 7. You'll see this within the language, that he's using argumentative language to build a case. And so, In verse 6, as you look at it, he goes on to say, For we knew that our old self was crucified with him. And so he's explaining that our old self, this man who we once were in Adam, died. And as we talked about earlier, it's going from team Adam to team Christ, and that the old man, this old self, this pre-conversion state, truly did die with Christ. And here's the purpose. Do you see? He says, so that... The body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless. To explain this, one commentator explains that there are two deaths when it comes to sin. The first is our death to guilt, to the guilt of sin, through identification with Christ. We are no longer guilty of our sin. That is over because Christ has died for our guilt. The second one is that our death to self through imitation of Christ. So on the one hand, we have been crucified with Christ, but on the other hand, we are crucifying our sinful nature with all its desires so that every day we renew this attitude by taking up our cross and following Christ to crucifixion. The first is a legal death, a death to the penalty of sin. The second is a moral death, a death to the power of sin. The first belongs to the past and is, re- and is unique and unrepeatable. The second belongs to the present and is repeatable, even continuous. I died to sin in Christ once. I die to my sin and myself daily. There's two deaths, a previous one and an ongoing one that he's elaborating on here. And the third premise is, I think, one of the most beautiful promises within the Bible. It says in premise three, it says, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. What Paul is doing here is he's personifying sin. He's he's seeing it as a master, a master of us as people. And he assumes that previously it has full control over those who have not died in Christ and with Christ. And so he's saying that a slave who dies is free of his master And those who die with Christ are acquitted from their old master, sin. Sin no longer has claim on the justified person, just as the law has none on the one who has died. And so this beautiful promise is that we are freed from the power and the slavery of sin. We have now been set free from this previous man, this man in Adam, to now being in Christ. We no longer have to obey sin. We no longer have sin as our master. We have Christ as our master. We have received a new identity. We are no longer in sin. We are in Christ. And this calls us into a life of modeling how Christ lived in in his life now is going to be modeled by us in our life. And so to wrap us up and give us a couple applications here um, that are just clear from this text, the first one is if you are a follower of Christ and you have not been baptized, the call is simple from this text. Get wet. Be baptized. Like, How could you not long to be able to model and demonstrate and remember what Christ has done in your own life and to demonstrate that publicly to the world, saying that I am no longer in Adam, I'm in Christ. I've died to my sin and I've been raised to walk in this newness of life. There is beauty to being baptized and being able to publicly state that and to remember that. Martin Luther, um, often he would say when people would ask him about sin and sin's temptation in his life and how he responds, he'd be like, get away from me, sin. I've been baptized. Like I know the power of my baptism and sin no longer has reign and rule over me. I am now in Christ. Christ. There's beauty to baptism. And so if you haven't been baptized, reach out. Students, I would love to talk to you about baptism. Libby, if you're um, in fifth grade and under, would be glad to talk to you about baptism, put a class on. TA for adults, talk to him. Um, We would love to walk you through and expand upon the meaning of baptism and help you make that decision in your life. The second one is this. Look at your own life and your own heart and ask yourself, in what ways am I presuming upon God's grace to be licensed for sin in my life? Paul's point here is that we cannot presume upon grace. We cannot assume that grace itself enables us to live a life of sin. But so often we do. We do assume that because we're forgiven, we can still live in sin. And so ask yourselves these questions. What excuses or reasons do you believe that it is okay to continue in sin? whether that's gossip, lying, lust, selfishness, greed, what excuses or reasons are you making in your life to continue in sin? And are there times in your life where you know something you are about to do is sinful and you look at passages as Romans 8.38 that nothing can separate you from the love of God is a license for you to be able to continue to live in sin? Are you using God's word to, to make sin acceptable in your life? And lastly, with, that, with questions is, are there sins in your life that really aren't that big of a deal, especially compared to others' sin? And then our third point, third application here is, stop living in sin. Drag your sin to the foot of the cross, confessing it to God and asking him to transform you through your new identity in Christ. And so I'll invite the worship team back up to sing one um, chorus of, of In Christ Alone. Um, but as they come up, I want to pray for us and celebrate what God has done for us. And so um, bow your heads and I'll pray for us. Father, thank you for the fact that, God, we are saved by Christ's blood alone. God, that we are made new, that, God, we are given this new identity in him. And so, Father, thank you for the fact that we no longer are enslaved to sin, that, God, that we have been set free from sin, and that, God, we ourselves are now free to walk in this newness of life. What has been said about us on the cross is, God, that we are now viewed as your son. God, that his life is our life, his death is our death. And so, Father, help us to walk as new creatures, new people who have been made new, by what you have done for us on the cross. God, it's in your name that we pray, amen.